Welcome to the London Politica podcast. This is where we join industry thought leaders and experts to uncover the nexus of politics, markets, and society. My name is Manas Chavla, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by Ambassador Richard Schmierer. Ambassador Schmierer currently serves as the chairman of the board of directors of the Middle East Policy Council, and prior to this, he completed a distinguished 34-year career at the U.S. State Department, which included his ambassadorship in Oman, and a position as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Public Diplomacy in the Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs. Ambassador, it's an honor to have you on the show. Onas, thank you very much. I really enjoy the opportunity to be here and look forward to our discussion. Wonderful. Ambassador, I want to start off by talking about something that's obviously on everyone's minds right now, the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, uh, as we enter into the second week of, of this bloody conflict. I mean, Hamas militants are firing rockets at major population centers in Israel, uh, while the Israeli military continues to pound the very densely populated Gaza Strip uh, with artilleries and missiles. So far, we've seen uh, the death of more than 200 Palestinians and 10 Israelis, but by the time this podcast podcast airs, that might well be more. Uh, Ambassador, I recall one of your past interviews where you once described American policy towards Israel and Palestine uh, as one of the biggest challenges you faced in engaging with others overseas. Uh, what do you what do you make of this escalation? Well, I think uh, first of all, it's an absolute humanitarian tragedy. Um, and it's very unfortunate that this uh, actually was, was allowed to happen and, and is taking place. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, it indicates the ability of those on the extreme uh, elements of the political spectrum, both in the Palestinian and Israeli political spheres, uh, to bring things to happen to their advantage, uh, which is to the disadvantage uh, of the average Palestinian and the average Israeli, uh, and really undermines efforts by moderates, by those who really want to resolve these issues, uh, to come to political resolutions. Uh, so we have to figure out some way to disempower those who like who, who use these kinds of efforts uh, to undermine efforts to actually resolve the underlying issues. Um, and that is just unfortunate. And, and I think we as diplomats of the international community uh, need to find a way to get the parties uh, to move towards resolving the underlying issues and to disempower the extremists who use violence to prevent a resolution of those issues. Right. And, and I also wanted to ask about the timing of this, because, you know, Israel, frankly, is in a political deadlock. It's, it's had four elections in two years. Uh, and in the one most recently, I mean, a fortnight ago, it seemed like Netanyahu was on his way out. His time was up, uh, but because his you know, mandate to form a coalition had expired. But, you know, suddenly the escalation with Hamas made it completely politically infeasible for any opposition coalition to collaborate with uh, more sort of left-leaning parties or Arab-Israeli parties, uh, and suddenly Netanyahu has a fighting chance to sort of continue his 12-year prime ministership. Uh, you know, is this escalation between Israel and Hamas, uh, do you think this could at least in part be motivated by Netanyahu perhaps as his kind of last bid to stay in power? Well, certainly, I, I think the fact that uh, there was an effort underway to form a coalition which would have removed Netanyahu from power, um, is it's not coincidental that actions were taken in, in East Jerusalem um, specifically um, and, and also activity at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which ultimately led to uh, an eruption of violence. Uh, unfortunately, at the same time, 
uh, the marginalization of the Palestinians under the previous administration here in the U.S., I think also set a tone or, or set the possibility uh, for the greater empowerment of the extremists, in this case Hamas, on the Palestinian side. So I think uh, I think the immediate period, right before the violence started, was connected to the uh, ongoing efforts to form a new coalition government in Israel, and then I think it found reciprocity on the more extreme uh, side of the Palestinians because of the recent history of the treatment of Palestinians. So I, I think both sides, unfortunately, had motivations, the extremists on both sides had motivations to use this kind of activity to strengthen their own positions against the better uh, interests of the moderates and, and those who want to see the, these issues resolved. Interesting. And I also note that you've uh, also, you're a member of the advisory board of the National Council for U.S.-Arab Relations, and you talked a bit about how the previous administration might have an impact on, you know, supposedly marginalizing uh, Palestinians within America. Could you talk to me a bit more about that? Well, un unfortunately, um, after decades of essentially a uniform uh, U.S. approach to the region, to the Arab-Israeli dispute, both under Republicans and Democrats, there were certain red lines, there were certain givens um, about how we approached the issue in order to try to position ourselves to be helpful towards resolving the issue. So we did not take unilateral steps uh, to support one side or the other. Uh, it's true, I think many people will say, well, we were very supportive of, of many Israeli initiatives. Uh, yes, but there were still also certain limitations to that support. And there was an effort by both Democratic and Republican administrations uh, to get Israel uh, to move towards resolving the dispute with the Palestinians uh, and to reduce or limit Israeli actions, which we saw as unhelpful, such as settlement construction or, or annexation of territory. Unfortunately, in the previous administration, that all changed and, and our policies completely supported all the unilateral activities that previous administrations had not supported. And as a result, I think the Palestinians uh, really saw themselves as being marginalized and as, as the U.S., the one party that might potentially uh, play a role in bringing about a resolution of the conflict, as now being completely one-sided. Now, that changed with the Biden administration, but the Biden administration is only a few months old. And so I think the festering um, unhappiness or even anger uh, about the treatment of the Palestinians under the previous administration, and to some extent, the empowerment of more extremist views within Israel because of the policies of the previous administration have now spilled over to what we're seeing as, as the violence. So I think the first step is to get the violence under control. And then I think the Biden administration has to make it very clear that it supports a resolution uh, of the Palestinian-Israeli uh, dispute, as it said, in terms of a two-state solution with equitable outcomes for both sides. Uh, and I think if that message is received, I would hope the Israelis will respond by, by putting in place a, a moderate government that will proceed down that course. And the Palestinians, whose leadership is also having real problems, uh, can also rally behind an effort to try to move towards a two-state solution. So I would hope the Biden administration, which has a very good team in place, can start down that path. Mm. That's really interesting. And another thing that sort of caught my eye about this event is 
you know, the kind of violence we're seeing between Israel and Hamas sort of matches the levels we might have seen in 2014. But I think one thing people might not be paying close enough attention to is the violence inside Israel uh, between, you know, Jewish and Arab communities that until now have lived very closely side by side. Uh, and, and, you know, we haven't quite seen that faster in the way it, it is right now, uh, at least for decades. Uh, and, I, and I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on that, on, on why on why sort of uh, tensions inside Israel are sort of bubbling up with this conflict in particular and this time in particular? Uh, well, I think that's very unfortunate um, because, as you said, uh, I think there had been a history where Arabs inside Israel were willing to try to work within Israel towards their own sort of fair treatment uh, and also to try to be a voice for a moderate approach to the Palestinian issue which would ultimately have resulted in a two-state uh, solution uh, with fair treatment of the Palestinians. Um, I think recent developments, and, and frankly here I would blame the U.S. to some extent, uh, the policies of the pre previous administration, uh, I think really uh, led to a certain um, extent to despair uh, among all of those in the Arab communities within Israel and elsewhere uh, that there was going to be an effort to find an equitable resolution of the Palestinian issue. The Palestinians were, were not only ignored by the previous administration, they were completely marginalized uh, in terms of having the dip diplomatic connections cut off, having aid cut off, uh, and, and even to the extent where uh, you know, the, the plan was, was put out there that basically uh, accepted Israeli annexation of significant parts of the West Bank. So when you start seeing policies like that, it leads to a level, it changes thinking and, and, and well-intentioned people who might have thought that working within a political process, working towards what would generally be seen as a fair resolution of the issue is now no longer viable. And if you get to that point, then unfortunately, certain elements, and this is certainly not all Arabs in Israel, but there will be elements within the Arab communities in Israel which will just despair of the prospect of a fair resolution for the Palestinians, and you begin to see this kind of activity, which really is, is extremely unfortunate because it undermines what could have been a unified approach within Israel towards a fair resolution of the Palestinian issue, which I still hope we will see once the current violence subsides. Right. And, and speaking of the U.S. Uh, role in all of this, I mean, I completely agree with you that the first step should obviously be the secession of violence uh, in Israel and Palestine. But the U.S. did use its veto in the Security Council to block uh, three resolutions calling for a ceasefire, uh, notably because it you know, didn't mention uh, Hamas as contributing to some of the violence in the Middle East. Uh, and then it took Biden eight days to call for a ceasefire himself. Um, and, you know, between all of this, lots of commentators and, and sort of, uh, you know, lots of commentators have been saying uh, Biden never came to power on a foreign policy agenda of prioritizing the Middle East. He's always been focused on China, China and China. Um, what do you sort of say to that? Do you think Biden's been too slow to act and what role uh, has that played uh, so far? Well, I guess the way I see it, first of all, uh, Biden has he has a very long career, a very long political career, uh, and it's always been very supportive of Israeli security and Israeli well-being. But it is not supportive of the more extremist policies of the current government. 
Um, now, in, in terms of the UN, it's unfortunate that over the last couple of decades, I guess I would say, um, the perception, uh, at least among Israelis uh, of all stripes, uh, is that the UN has, has lost its credibility or become a biased party vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Arab-Israeli uh, Arab dispute. Now, one can argue that, um, but under that circumstance, I think the Biden administration concluded uh, that it would not be helpful to have Israel be the subject of a, of a resolution uh, at the UN, uh, which it, it would not see as being a balanced resolution. It, it would kind of put Israel's back up and, and would just be, be counterproductive. That said, I think from the very beginning, if you look at the State Department statements that have come out, from the very beginning, uh, they have actually reflected essentially the language that the UN resolutions have sought to, to have. Um, so, so we've, as a sort of as a bilateral policy or as, a, as our own policy, uh, have strongly supported you know, a call for, for a ceasefire, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think uh, President Biden's kind of in, in the difficult position of he doesn't want to alienate um, the voices in Israel who could be helpful by doing things which will be perceived as being one-sided or, or biased. At the same time, he needs to get those voices on his side towards bringing about a, a ceasefire. Now, yesterday, for the first time after, what was it, nine days, um, he did call for an immediate de-escalation. Uh, so that was a, a watershed development, um, and I think he will continue uh, in that direction. So it's a tough balancing act because you don't want to alienate your potential partners on the Israeli side, but you do need to make sure you're making it clear uh, that you really abhor the violence and you want to see it stop. Mm. And when when Biden uses you know the veto in the Security Council, I mean, frankly, that that's not uh, an anomaly. You know, all, almost all U.S. presidents have been doing that sort of consecutively for many years. But Biden came to power on an agenda of kind of building America back. Um, and and are you worried this might kind of undermine uh, his position? Uh, are you worried that you know this the U.S. might lose space or sort of we see decreased legitimacy? Uh, of the U.S. as a sort of proper global international player uh, when it's so blatantly kind of shielding Israel in, you know, multilateral diplomacy, even if it might be uh, pursuing the right things and almost the same language in, in its sort of bilateral relations? Uh, well, I mean, as I say, it, it's a difficult balance. I think Biden has made it clear and will continue to make it clear um, that America is once again uh, out there in the international community promoting basic values, promoting values that, that define the United States, that have defined the international order uh, for the last seven decades, um, that you know, rule of law is important, human rights are important. Um, you know, countries and individuals need to abide by certain uh, kinds of rules. Um, so I think that will continue to be an emphasis. Uh, the, the challenge right now is you have an ongoing conflict that you want to bring to a close so you don't want to do anything in the immediate term, which will undermine that by signaling that you're, you know, on one side or another, or you're blaming one side or another or whatever. Um, and so I think this immediate uh, situation um, will need to be brought to an end. I don't think it will have an ultimate impact more broadly 
on Biden's um, message and, and, and the U.S. position uh, that we will promote um, rule of law, human rights, you know, fair treatment of, of populations, uh, including the Palestinians and others um, going forward. But right now, what we need to do is everything we can to stop the violence. And then we can get back to that broader message. Mm-hmm. And, and I also want to get your thoughts on, you know, what levers Biden might have to influence any change in the future in the Arab-Israeli situation. Uh, lots of people were enraged by the fact that he recently approved a $700 million arms sale uh, to Israel, which is part of billions of dollars of uh, arms sales uh, happening, you know, throughout his administration, uh, dating back many years, um, and and you know, frankly, when he was interviewed about this in 2019, he didn't possibly consider this as one of the things he would bargain with uh, when considering you know Israeli policy. Uh, whereas on the other side of the political, I mean, on the same side of, of the Democratic Party, uh, but on the sort of other end of it, Bernie Sanders. Uh, has been advocating for for you know using this as a bargaining chip with Israel for you know withholding these arms sales until uh, Israel can align more with the ceasefires that the United States proposed. What's your stance on that? Do you think uh, the U.S. should be using its military sales to Israel as um, an instrument uh, in in you know maybe enforcing and bringing about peace? Well, that, that, that's a, an interesting question, a difficult one. The timing is such you know this was approved before the current. Um, violence took place. Uh, but yes, it does provide Israel with the kind of weaponry which allows it to take to undertake the precision targeting that it is taking. Um, then one could also make the case, well, would, would it be better for them not to have precision munitions and therefore you'd have much more widespread violence? But I think the um, the approach has to be to recognize, in other words, it can't focus really on the Israeli side. Israel we will, you know, the U.S., there's broad support for Israeli security. So, so within the U.S., there will continue to be a very, very broad support for the idea that Israel should be provided with what it needs to, to defend itself and, and to maintain its security. That said, I think there needs to be a very overt and very um, forceful diplomatic effort of engagement with the Palestinians, with the Arab countries, to promote a, a settlement of the Palestinian uh, issue, the dispute to the Arab-Israeli issue. And we need to bring to bear uh, all of the factors. You know, the Arab states can play a role here. Uh, we can play a role. Europe can play a role. Uh, to outline what would be a fair resolution of the dispute and to use all of our diplomatic efforts and, and potentially other efforts, uh, public opinion, et cetera, uh, to try to move towards that kind of resolution, I think one of the one of the positive outcomes of this otherwise completely tragic situation um, is a broader international recognition of the plight of the Palestinians, and therefore potentially coming out of this would be international support for really moving towards a resolution uh, of that issue which might even be something that happens in Israel, given what we've seen uh, with the domestic developments in Israel. So possibly with, with strong diplomacy and strong international support, we could see a process come out of this, which might actually lead to a betterment in the situation vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. and, and the central theme I kind of see throughout this discussion of ours 
uh, is, you know, just, you know, the sort of bipartisan, staunch domestic support in the United States, uh, all the way from the top for Israeli defense and security policy. Um, but I'd be one to argue that, you know, maybe that's not reciprocated to the same degree uh, when we, you know, think about Israel and its priorities towards the United States. Uh, one example of that, uh, sort of off-quoted nowadays, uh, is on the one hand, you know, Biden and Biden's diplomats are in Vienna. Uh, they're negotiating with the Iranians to bring back the joint comprehensive plan of action, the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, to, you know, ostensibly to make the Middle East a safer place. Uh, and right as that's kind of happening and they're having these talks indirectly with the Europeans, uh, Israel's sort of thwarting that entire process uh, and covertly bombing uh, Iranian sort of nuclear sites, uh, you know, in what one can only assume to be their objective to be uh, to kind of flare hostilities between the two sides because Netanyahu is well known to be a critic of the nuclear deal. Um, does does it seem like to you that that the U.S. might not be getting enough back uh, in its relationship with Israel? Well, as I say, I think what we what we see here in the U.S. Um, is broad support for Israel for its existence, for its security, but broad criticism of current Israeli policies. So, um, yeah, on the extreme right wing, there's just there's lockstep support for whatever Israel does. But more broadly, within the U.S., there's been a very significant erosion of support for the policies of the Israeli government. Um, and so, um, so I think we need to, to maintain that distinction. Uh, as you suggested, yes, it's clear, Netanyahu has made it clear from the very beginning, from before the deal was even reached, uh, that he's opposed to the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, but I think uh, President Obama uh, at that time and President Biden at this time both recognize the importance of addressing what would be the existential threat of Iran possessing, possessing a nuclear weapon. Um, and the way to address that is through the nuclear deal. So I think we are, despite whatever opposition uh, Israel or others might have, for U.S. security and for global security, I think the Biden administration will continue to prioritize making sure that Iran does not develop a nuclear weapon. And they will continue to do that through the nuclear deal. So I'm optimistic that ultimately that deal will come back into effect and that that will be the means by which we prevent Iran from pursuing a nuclear weapon. Right. And, and sort of further discussion of these talks happening in Vienna, I mean, one thing that I just, you know, found is a bit fascinating, uh, and our listeners might find this interesting, is Iran doesn't want to be seen as negotiating directly with the United States. So all these diplomats are in Vienna, but, you know, it's a really funny logistical situation because the Americans are in one hotel, uh, and the Europeans and the Iranians and the Chinese are in one hotel, and then the Europeans are shuttling back and forth between these hotels uh, to kind of get the U.S. and the Iran to agree on, you know, just something. And then these talks have been going on for weeks. Uh, even some of these diplomats within it are, have expressed frustration privately to newspapers. Uh, and these talks, they seem to be stalling because Iran wants the U.S. to remove all of Trump's imposed sanctions. Uh, and the State Department's deemed deem that to be an, a very unrealistic demand. And, you know, I find it really interesting because you've said in the past that the efficacy of these sanctions in Iran is very limited because most of the damage, uh, especially in a country you know, like Iran, uh, is inflicted on the Iranian people who instead we might, you know, rather look at as American allies. Uh, in, in your estimation, why is it that the State Department is so adamant on refusing to repeal Trump sanctions when it seems like to be the only thing, you know, blocking 
uh, a potential security solution between Iran and the United States? And, and what do you think uh, the U.S. should do instead? Uh, well, first of all, uh, let me just say that uh, the pressure of the pre the the policy of the previous administration of maximum pressure did not succeed. So we we've seen that effort uh, and we've seen that fail. Uh, so there has to be a different approach. Now, I think what we're seeing in Vienna is dip diplomacy at work. Um, that is, you're going to see Iran make what you might call maximalist demands. Uh, they're going to ask for maximalist concessions, in this case, the lifting of all sanctions. Now, it's important to note that the nuclear deal never involved the lifting of all sanctions. It involved the lifting of certain sanctions that were associated with trying to counter Iran's nuclear program. There have always been other individual sanctions against specific uh, people or organizations that are being, that are accused of or are seen as promoting international terrorism. So the sanctions associated with countering efforts to to support international terrorism will not go away. They never did go away. But the sanctions that specifically were put in place to get Iran to address the Iran nuclear program, they're the ones that can be negotiated. So I think what we'll see is Iran will continue to posture in requesting all sanctions be lifted. I think the Biden administration will be willing to, to lift those associated with Iran's, uh, that were put in place to counter Iran's nuclear program. Uh, and that ultimately, I think that's the process that will lead us back into the deal once again coming into effect. Mm-hmm. And taking sort of a macro vantage view, I mean, the U.S. appears to be sort of gradually disengaging from other regions in the Middle East, especially under President Biden. They've withdrawn support for the war in Yemen. Uh, they've ended sales for, uh, of weapons to Saudi Arabia, or actually, I mean, uh, at least temporarily frozen sales of weapons to Saudi Arabia. And they've planned to remove troops from Afghanistan. Uh, do you think Biden and future administrations are going to keep moving forward in this direction of sort of disengagement from the Middle East? and? Uh, or at least not direct engagement in the Middle East? And if so, I mean, what obstacles might stand in their way? Uh, well, first of all, I think it's important to note that the Middle East continues to be an area of very important strategic um, interest to the United States and the global community, um, both because of the role it plays in the global energy markets, but also because of the potential that violence there can spill over. You know, it's famously said, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. Uh, and we, we saw that on 9-11. We saw that. We've seen that repeatedly. So we will have to keep our eye on the ball in the Middle East. That said, I think the approach will be much less interventionist. Um, we will, I believe, continue to, to keep a certain amount of military force uh, in the region or, or over the horizon, as they say, uh, as a means of deterrence and as a means of quick reaction if necessary. But I think we will seek to be less directly involved uh, in the immediate day-to-day -day activities and the immediate conflicts that are taking place there. So we will need to make sure uh, that our fundamental interests continue to be uh, assured uh, in the region uh, through some kind of, of military and security arrangements, uh, including deployments. Uh, but I think we will seek to do that at the minimum level that we can uh, to guarantee our interests. And so that said, I think we're looking to our partners in the region uh, to, first of all, 
try to resolve some of the conflicts that are already there. Uh, you look at things like the Yemen war, um, you know, Syria, obviously, um, I think it's very encouraging to see that Iraq, which would have a lot to gain if Saudi Arabia and Iran stopped being so antagonistic, um, is trying to do things to help reduce the antagonism between those two countries. Um, we're making an effort, I think Oman is trying to help uh, in addressing the, the uh, civil war in Yemen. So I think we want to see our partners in the region work together to try to defuse the conflicts that are there even as we will maintain um, the, the necessary capabilities to ensure that our interests and the interests of the global community, which are centered in the Middle East, continue to be supported. Right. And, and like you alluded, I mean, Saudi Arabia and Iran have been holding these talks hosted by Iraq, uh, which seems to be ushering in quite a significant realignment in the Middle East, I'd say, uh, because animosity between these two countries has you know, long uh, defined the sort of hostility in the Middle East. It's manifested in a number of proxy wars, notably the one in Yemen. Um, and, you know, it also is just happening really quickly. Just three years ago, uh, MBS compared the Iranian uh, leader, you know, and he said something like, you know, the Ayatollah Khomeini makes Hitler look good. Uh, and, you know, three years later, uh, we're seeing these two gentlemen having their diplomats talk to each other in Iraq. So did this take you by surprise, Ambassador? Well, I guess I didn't specifically expect it to happen, but um, I do think we're seeing a recognition. Uh, certainly, we've seen it already on the part of the Saudis. Uh, and I think maybe there's a chance of seeing it on the part of the Iranians. And that is the, the, effort, the promotion over recent decades of what I would describe as extremist Islamic ideologies um, on both sides uh, have undermined the security and the well-being of the region. Uh, and so I think the first uh, public statement of recognition of that was what we heard uh, from Mohammed bin Salman a few years ago. Uh, and that is that he, he was indicating that he felt that Saudi Arabia was, had made a mistake in promoting what is seen as a relatively extremist version of Islam in response to what happened with the Iranian revolution. So it seems to be that with the Iranian revolution um, and, and Iran beginning to promote an extremist Shia-based uh, Islamic ideology, the Saudis felt the need to kind of do the opposite, that is to promote uh, a, a more or less extremist version uh, of, an, of a Sunni-based uh, Islamic ideology. And now Saudi Arabia has stood down from that. Uh, and so I think that opens the door for Iran to consider, okay, this is not the confrontation that we were having before. And so therefore, maybe we can have a dialogue to figure out how to defuse um, what had been an ongoing confrontation for several decades uh, and get back to both sides pursuing more moderate uh, kind of political programs, which would be, do a great deal of good for the region as a whole. Mm -hmm. And and what do you think each side is trying to get out of these talks as sort of their objectives and and you know why is Iraq so so intent on being the broker uh, between these two sides? Well, I guess I was uh, I'll answer the second question first. Having served in Iraq and having been the deputy assistant secretary for Iraq, uh, I'm very familiar with the difficult situation Iraq is in vis-a-vis -vis Iran on the one side 
uh, and its uh, Gulf Arab neighbors on the other. Uh, Iraq is a majority Shia country, but it is definitely an Arab country. Uh, and so it's got, in common with Iran, a Shia majority, but in common with its Arab neighbors, an Arab population. And so it's sort of caught in between. Now, what Iraq wants most of all is to ha be left alone in the sense of not have outside countries try to influence its internal political development. That, unfortunately, has not been the case. There's been tremendous meddling by Iran in Saudi in, in Iraq. Um, not so much on the other side. The Arabs have largely, unfortunately, in my view, uh, kind of isolated uh, Iraq. Uh, and I think what Iraq would like to see is Iran reduce its meddling and, and Iraq be able to take a position independent and work with both sides. So Iraq has a lot to gain by uh, Saudi-Iranian uh, rapprochement. Uh, I think what the Saudis would like to see um, is you now have a, a region all around Saudi Arabia where Iran has influence through proxies. So you see it in Iraq, you see it in Lebanon, you see it in Yemen, you see it in Syria. Um, and so Saudi Arabia would like to see a reduction in that Iranian influence through proxies. So I think their point of view is if they can have a dialogue with Iran and convey to Iran that they, Saudi Arabia, are not inimically opposed to Iran, that they would like to live in peace in the region with Iran, that potentially Iran would see that they don't need to continue expending the tremendous amount of financial and political resources that they expend in support of these proxies around the region. So that potentially, to me, would be the, the, the benefit to Saudi Arabia and would certainly be a benefit to the region to see the end of the, these kinds of proxy conflicts all around the region. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, there's just a flurry of diplomatic activity in the Middle East, but you know, another one of these uh, potential reopenings might be between Saudi Arabia and Syria. Uh, and, and I'm wondering what your thoughts were in you know, why that's happening, firstly, but also secondly, uh, in what way that might either help or hurt uh, the sort of more reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran? Well, I mean, I think that's going to be challenging because right now, um, in, well, first of all, Syria is a completely broken country. Um, you know, there's, there's nominal leadership of parts of the country. Parts of it are basically outside of government control. Um, and then the support that the government there does have comes largely from uh, Iran and to some, uh, to a certain extent, uh, from Russia. So I think those are going to make it. Those facts are going to make it challenging to come to a resolution uh, of the Syrian conflict. That said, uh, I think there is a broad recognition that the, tr the tremendous suffering uh, of the Syrian people, the, the tremendous outflows of refugees and the internally displaced persons, the humanitarian situation in Syria might lead uh, the countries in the region, in this case, perhaps led by Saudi Arabia, to decide to at least accept a status quo in which you still have the Assad regime in power, but under a, um, a situation which allows for other voices, which allows uh, for a reconstruction and a return of the Syrian refugees. In other words, it's not going to be ideal, uh, but it won't be a conflict. 
uh, and therefore potentially, uh, and I think even Assad would would accept some means of of, of ending the quote unquote conflict uh, in exchange for some kind of a political resolution. Potentially, Iran would not want to see that happen. So that potentially, um, Iran could be a spoiler. But if Iran can be convinced through its discussions with Saudi Arabia or otherwise uh, that it can live in the region in coexistence with the Arab states, they might also come to the conclusion that it's best that that Syria return to some sense of normalcy uh, and that the the conflict there be brought to an end. Mm -hmm. And I also want to move to sort of talking about, you know, your experience uh, being an ambassador in Oman. Uh, it's a country that's often been portrayed as the Switzerland of the Middle East. It's, you know, foreign policy has been described as uh, friends to all, but enemy to none. Uh, and that approach, you know, involves quite opaque procedures uh, as it becomes a sort of major negotiation intermediary in the Middle East. Uh, and I know that, you know, you saw firsthand when you were American ambassador, uh, the way uh, sort of Oman played this kind of broker role, especially with Iran. Uh, and in your experience, I mean, how have the Omanis traditionally leveraged this influence in the Middle East? Well, as you say, um, they have had a policy where they do seek to have good relations with all countries and in particular with all of their neighbors. Um, and that has, of course, included Iran. Uh, there is actually a history there where Iran actually helped. Of course, this was under the Shah, but Iran actually helped Saudi, uh, Oman put down a rebellion in the Dofar province. Um, with the, the support of, of Iranian um, troops. So there's a certain uh, element even of gratitude um, for what Iran, for their relationship with Iran historically. Now, that's, of course, not with the current government. It's with the previous uh, Iranian government. Um, so in general, um, they have sought to have uh, good relations with all their neighbors, and in particular with Iran. Uh, Oman shares the, uh, the Straits of Hormuz with Iran, and so they have to both work together to ensure that the, the Straits of Hormuz uh, remain peaceful and, and, and you know, shipping can go through, et cetera, et cetera. So they have very practical reasons for having those uh, good relationships. On the other hand, uh, Iran, I think, looks to Oman as being a credible, um, honest broker, quote unquote. Uh, Oman uh, is a majority Abadi country, uh, and that's not known to a lot of people. The Abadism uh, sect of Islam is neither Sunni nor Shia. So in that sense, Oman is seen as not being in, in either the Sunni or Shia camp. Uh, it's an Arab country, so certainly it's in the Arab camp. But uh, as a result, I think there's a certain element of credibility that, that Iran sees uh, with Oman. And one of the things I admire about Oman is, is they're very uh, effective in their diplomacy. I remember when I was the ambassador there, uh, one of the things we worked on successfully with Oman uh, was gaining the release of three American hikers who had been taken uh, in Iraq, actually, and then were, were in Tehran, imprisoned in Tehran. They were innocent American hikers who wandered over the border. But it was a very interesting object lesson in diplomacy. Because working with the Omanis, we, of course, didn't engage directly with the Iranians. Uh, but with the Omanis, they helped us and they helped Iran on both sides uh, come up with some confidence-building uh, steps that gave both sides sort of the ability or the sense that we were willing to have a legitimate diplomatic discussion uh, to resolve this issue. 
And ultimately, uh, through those confidence-building steps, um, we did resolve the issue, uh, and Iran released the three hikers without preconditions, without you know a lot of posturing, that they understood that these were innocent people who just wandered over the border. As a result of the goodwill or the confidence that came out of that, that's what actually allowed the discussion for the nuclear deal to be launched, again, with the help of the Omanis. So it was a matter of, of gaining the goodwill or, or the, the confidence of the Iranians that the U.S. was willing to engage in diplomatic discussions without trying to make you know, big posturing or, or anything like that. Uh, and as a result, we sent a very good team of diplomats to Oman, and ultimately they were successful in, in arranging the deal. So I think it was a good case study in how relatively small diplomatic steps can be built on in order to reach what really, in my view, was, was a very uh, important watershed uh, success, which was the Iran nuclear deal. Mm -hmm. And I just want to bring this back to, to the UK, uh, which is where I'm recording this from. I mean, this year, particularly you know, after Brexit, everyone here has been trying to think about what role the UK should play in the world. Uh, you know, the government has its own kind of global Britain agenda. Uh, the foreign policy review signals that Indo-Pacific shield. The one that caught my eye was in January of this year, Chatham House uh, released a report saying that the UK shouldn't try to be, you know, the world's uh, sort of emulate some, you know, nebulous leadership role or try to be the world's police, uh, but rather to try to be a quote-unquote global broker. And that seems quite similar to what you're describing as the role that the Omanis played uh, and continue to play in the Middle East. And I'm wondering, do you think there's any lessons that British diplomats can learn from Oman in sustaining sort of this delicate balance of allegiances? Well, of course, uh, Britain, uh, more than Oman, uh, than Oman, is really solidly in the Western camp. I mean, Oman, yes, is a Western-oriented nation, but Britain, of course, is in NATO and, and is absolutely, you know, kind of wedded uh, to the Western alliance. But that said, Britain has a long history of global engagement uh, and actually has a diverse population which could play a role in continued uh, engagement by the UK uh, more broadly. Certainly, if I look at the Gulf, um, the UK has the ability, uh, they have a long relationship with Oman and, and other states there in the Gulf. Uh, they have a, a lot of goodwill on the basis of the countries of the Gulf towards the UK. Um, so certainly there, they could play a very helpful role in trying to resolve some of the conflicts that are taking place there. And then more broadly, of course, uh, the UK has the history of the Commonwealth. Um, and so there are other disputes, there are other areas of, of conflict. You look at India, Pakistan, um, you look at Hong Kong, uh, you look at places where the UK has historically uh, had connections and, and I'm sure still has you know, a, a certain element of, of um, viability vis-a-vis -vis those kinds of, of areas. There are people in the UK with backgrounds associated with those areas who could also uh, play a role. So I think um, the UK is a, a, a country that wants to play a positive role in promoting the kind of global values, the kind of global peace and security and rule of law uh, that the West has been promoting for several decades now. Um, and I think it's uniquely positioned, given its history and its global uh, engagement, to be able to do that 
in countries in various parts of the world. So yes, uh, when I was in Oman, I got to know my British counterparts very well. I came to have great respect uh, for the ability of British diplomats. Um, and I think that ability, those capabilities could and should uh, be used to try to help address conflicts or, or tensions uh, wherever they may be in the world, where the UK has history, where it has experience, where it has, where it has expertise. Mm -hmm. Ambassador, we've spoken about, you know, so many worrying trends today and you know, bloody conflicts, proxy wars, all sorts of things. But to end on a more hopeful note, uh, you know, given your extensive uh, career in foreign service, uh, in particularly in the Middle East, I want to know what makes you optimistic about the future of this region? Well, I think generally um, it's a region, a very, it's a very dynamic region. Uh, it's a region that is very young demographically. Uh, it's a region in which the young people there are very savvy. They're very connected. Um, the, the social media networks in the Middle East, I think, are stronger than anywhere else in the world. Uh, and so the, the people there are knowledgeable. Um, they're energetic. Uh, I, I think they understand the challenges that they're facing. And I think we're looking at really generational shifts um, based on the young people who are, you know, coming into the uh, adulthood there, uh, the experiences they're having, um, their, their awareness uh, of their own histories, their current circumstances, global trends. Um, they're well-educated. Uh, many, many of them, hundreds of thousands of them have been uh, educated in the United States, in the UK, and elsewhere abroad. So I think there's a, there's a nucleus of great, of great strength uh, in terms of going forward, uh, in, in terms of awareness and abilities on the part of young people in the region to address their current challenges and to make a positive contribution more broadly. So I guess in that sense, um, they've been through some very difficult times. They continue to have some very serious challenges. But I think that awareness and, and that experience is going to stand them in good stead as this next generation takes over and begins to really address some of the fundamental issues that their societies and their region face. That's very promising indeed. Brilliant. That was a really fascinating conversation, Ambassador, certainly leaving me with a lot to think about. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation, and it's been my pleasure. To find out more about London Politica, visit our website, londonpolitica.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. And that's all for this episode, folks. Stay tuned, stay safe, and I'll see you next week.